Welcome to The Insight. I'm Daniel Harrington, Chief Operating Officer at Intelligence Fusion. Today I'm joined by Senior Region Analyst Matt Pratton and also Vincent Fevrier, as well as our CEO and founder, Michael McCabe. In this episode, we are taking a look at what the US election will look like from a security perspective and the ramifications of that in the USA. If you like our content, please like, share and subscribe. So why has the US presidential election become so emotive in 2020? From my perspective, and I think from many um, supporters, this election seems to have transcended personalities and become a battle for the nation's ideological future. On one side, you've got Trump and the Republicans who are representing the forces of conservatism, nationalism and law and order. And on the other side, according to many um, people from both sides, you've got the Democrats potentially representing globalism, socialism and even communism to some hardcore Trump supporters as well as the deep state. What's your thoughts? Yeah, no, I'd agree. I think uh, why this year is just so significant compared to maybe previous elections uh, is just kind of a combination of what's happened in the last four months, uh, four years, uh, in addition to what's happened in recent months uh, with the likes of COVID-19 pandemic, Mm -hmm. which has taken a a huge toll on not only individuals, but businesses uh, across the country. Um, the, the economy is uh, as a wider impact, um, but also with uh, police violence, which has led to mm-hmm. anti-police and anti-racism uh, protests across the country, particularly in, in urban areas of Portland, Seattle, uh, New York. Um, and then it's just, I think, uh, it's, I think people see it as not only an election for, for the president, but rather for the soul of the nation and control of the institutions uh, that, that are quite significant. And mm-hmm. I think we... We've seen this recently uh, within the last uh, week or so with the death of uh, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, because now there's an opening. And so it's created this this situation to where uh, do the Republicans uh, nominate and vote in a Supreme Court Justice uh, before the election or do, do we wait till after the election where either Trump or Biden gets the opportunity to do so, which was again one a con- a conflict uh, previous to a 2016 election with President Obama. Uh, and Mitch McConnell in the Senate. And I think that that institution is important for, for individuals because it's a lifetime appointment. And so there's quite um, significant power uh, for either party to control that, uh, to get kind of uh, the policies put in place and uh, that, that they'd like. Um, so I think it's not just voting for the individual right now, but voting for for what they believe in, their, their view, points of views and control of, of, of the institutions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's just so much polarization politically, and it's not just in the US, it is globally that we're seeing this, um, where both sides have their narratives and their issues that they're focusing on, and there's a lack of center ground, and there's a lack of people actually listening to each other and actually trying to find that center ground, which I find really worrying. Um, and if we just kind of take some of those groups who are involved, so if we take Antifa as an example, um, if you read the, the opening of the anti-fascist handbook, 
In it, the author talks about um, the burning down of the Victoria Islamic Center in Victoria, Texas, hours after the announcement of Trump's administration's Muslim ban, um, weeks after a flurry of hundreds of a, a proposed anti-LGBTQ laws in 2017, a man smashed through the front door of Casa Ruby in Washington, D.C., a trans av- advocacy center and assaulted a trans woman. Um, a day after Donald Trump's election, Latino students in Royal Oak Middle School in Michigan were brought to tears by their classmates chanting, build the wall, as well as incidents of white supremacists army veterans killing a black man called Timothy Kaufman um, in New York, as well as a spate of Jewish cemetery desecrations. Um, and so if you kind of come at it from the position of the Antifa and anti-fascists, they believe that Trump is a fascist president and is bringing in a fascist regime. On the other side of it, you kind of look at it from a, a Republican perspective and you just look at the thing like things like um, Russia collusion and Spygate as an example. Um, people forget that when uh, John McCain was running for president in 2008, he was also accused of Russian collusion, which was mainly linked to uh, Wall Street Journal articles by um, Glenn Simpson. And that's the same Glenn Simpson who ended up going on to found Fusion GPS. Um, Fusion GPS, who were hired by uh, the Washington Free Beacon in September 2015, which is a conservative political website to do opposition research on Trump and other Republican presidential candidates. Um, And in the spring, once they actually knew it was Trump who was going to be the presidential nomination, um, Fusion GPS were then actually... um, taken over and 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 um, hired by Perkins Coy on behalf of Hillary Clinton's campaign. Now, all the way through this, you ended up having the Steele dossier, which was then used um, by the FBI to actually do wiretapping and um, spying on the Trump campaign. So if you look at that from a, a, a Republican perspective, they feel as if there is this 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 deep state, this 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 group of people in um, positions of power who have been against Trump from the beginning. So just two examples there just show you where these two sides are kind of coming at this um, and why it is so politicised and why it is so worrying as to how this is going to play out. And I guess, you know, during the last four years, there's been very little attempt by either side for any kind of rapprochement or or, or coming together on a centre central on centre ground. So really, in essence, what you're saying there is that there's, there's, this was already already going to be a contentious election, and then exacerbating that really, we've got COVID nineteen, recent social unrest, um, and also um, uh, you know, the issue of of law and order as well within many cities as, as a consequence of, of the social unrest. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think yeah, just it's just four years of of kind of adversarial opposition from the Democrats towards the Republicans, and like you said, there's just been no middle ground. And so, um, ultimately, this this election is quite significant for either party. Um, but we have to remember that uh, in presidential elections are one thing, but you're not only voting for the president during these times, you're also voting a certain amount of senators and representatives. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we have to remember that uh, the president is only as strong uh, as kind of Congress allows him to be. Uh, and so right now, Republicans control the Senate, but Democrats control the House. So it'll be interesting to see as well what happens not only from the pre- in the presidential level, but also in Congress. Do the Democrats retain the House and maybe gain the Senate as well? Or do the Republicans mm. retake control of the House as well as gain a president to where Trump feels emboldened to pass more policies that so, are maybe controversial? So looking at scenarios, um, what happens if, if, if Trump does win um, the election? Yeah, that's that's certainly going. To, that's certainly the uh, one major question for the uh, for for what's coming up. I think, with regards to 
uh, uh, Trump being uh, being reelected. Well, consider what happened in 2016. There's a there's certainly a, a historical precedent for it. So, in the in the aftermath of 2016, when uh, you know when when Trump uh, became president elect, the widespread there was widespread protests from Hillary Clinton supporters. Uh, a lot of protest marches. Uh, the, the most common one, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, among the most common one was a chant of "Not my president, not mm-hmm. my president," and it's uh, you know, aside from sort of you know widespread protests in the streets from uh, Hillary Clinton supporters, of course, be smaller instances of of uh, say university students going to libraries and do, and doing the same thing. Essentially, there was among the sort of um, I suppose hardcore Democrat supporters and and particularly those who wanted Hillary Clinton in. Uh, there was just a uh, a widespread there was just uh, a widespread denial that of, of Trump uh, of, of Trump being elected. They so just you see that the happening again. An initial phase of protests against Trump from I yes, mean, we, we saw it with George Bush, w, George W. Bush on his second inauguration. There was mass protests against against him, and then even at the Trump inauguration, um, you had protesters trying to block roads. Um, six police officers were injured. You had black block groups and self-described anarchists who engaged in sporadic um, acts of vandalism, rioting and violence. And if Trump gets into for a second term, I can just see that exacerbating and just seeing even more unrest at his inauguration. Yeah. Do you also see um, Trump being emboldened, you know, being being elected a second time, surviving a series of uh, scandals or investigations? Do you, do you see Trump being emboldened by, by, by a second term and potentially willing to confront um, what he perceives as a, you know threats on law and order or social unrest or in consequence uh, yes short uh, short version uh, a short answer for that but uh, I think the and reason for that would essentially be he's you know throughout the unrest we've seen from BLM and Antifa in Portland and Seattle especially he's very often been on on Twitter uh, tweeting uh, law and order law and order and I suppose if President Trump were to be re-elected he would likely see that as a as a mandate uh, to begin actually mm-hmm. taking concrete steps towards addressing uh, uh, addressing the social unrest and in fact there could even be a scenario where Trump is uh, able to um, realistically try invoking the Insurrection Act. That's uh, that's that's actually been a, a sort of a talking point in in, in recent unrest uh, with regards to why why isn't he invoking the the ins, uh, Insurrection Act? I suppose if he were to be re-elected, that would uh, essentially he could regard that as uh, as a mandate uh, to do so, or or take a variety of other steps. Uh, you know, uh, to to address uh, to address what's been going on, uh, especially uh, with Portland and and Seattle. I mean, he's already um, recently named Portland, Seattle, and New York as anarchist jurisdictions to remove federal funding from those areas. So it feels like it's just going to become more combative between the Republicans and the Democrats. And even just recently, um, he tweeted on the September the 22nd, a few weeks ago, I banned efforts to indoctrinate government employees with divisive and harmful sex and race-based ideologies. Today, I've expanded that ban to people and companies that do business with our country. The United States military government contractors and grantees, Americans should be taught to take pride in our great country. And if you don't, there's nothing in it for you. So I can just see more and more of these policies trying to roll back the, the efforts of progressives in the US, which I think is just going to lead to a more combative stance between the two different parties. Well, absolutely. I think like we we're talking about him being emboldened and things like that. We've seen it just from his rhetoric and his tweets uh, that he's put out, uh, not only regarding his policies or other policies, but 
uh, the other party's policies, but just in terms of even uh, the vote coming up, uh, when this month uh, he tweeted to his uh, to his supporters to vote by mail, uh, and then if their uh, vote hadn't been tabulated that they could see online, then to go to the polling stations and vote, uh, which initially would be illegal because you're not allowed to vote twice. Uh, so it kind of he's already emboldened in telling his supporters mm-hmm. to do things that aren't legal. So I think getting a second term would allow him to kind of push further his policies um, that he sees fit. Um, and we've seen it during COVID. He uh, kind of de- uh, undid regulations, uh, environmental regulations. So that in itself will uh, get environmental groups to protest those. Um, so I think when we talk about what happens if uh, Trump is reelected, it's, like we've said, I think, a lot of uh, similar unrest that we've been seeing uh, in previous months and more protests like we've seen uh, in the last four years Mm -hmm. um, just because he'll be, he'll feel that he has the mandate from the people to pass certain uh, policies which are contradictory uh, to what uh, democratic individuals believe. Um, So yeah, unrest is, is probably the bottom line of what we'll see. Just a question. Do we think that either candidate will actually unite the country? No, clearly we don't think Trump will, but will Biden? I think there'll be an attempt to to draw in moderates from both sides with Biden. Um, he's he's already um, stated, I think, before that 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 his intention is to try and unite America again. Um, I think we'll see uh, an attempt to to enact more business friendly to continue with maybe some of Trump's more biz, pro business or, or friendly uh, policies, um, but. I think it will be it will be very difficult because, as you said there, we've got an increasingly polarized um, population now. Um, so it will be a tough uphill battle for, for Joe Biden. Well, I think it will be tough because the protests we're seeing aren't necessarily against one or the other. Sometimes mm-hmm. we see uh, anti-government groups uh, who are more opposed to kind of government infringement on their rights. And so if Biden, say, is elected... Uh, it might be hard to unite because initially he'll have to tackle some issues which might require government uh, to step in, which will get opposition from these anti-government groups that we've seen uh, pop up, especially during the times of COVID. Um, so it's, I think he'll have a, I think he'll try to unite the country and try to restore faith in uh, in institution and in the government, which I think a lot of people have lost within the last mm-hmm. four years. Um, but I think he'll have, It'll be an uphill battle, um, and I think he'll have to pick and choose and be tactical in what he he does uh, and which policies he reverses. Um, because when Trump was elected, he was pretty quick at uh, reversing and uh, using executive orders and getting rid of regulations that the Obama administration had put in place. But I think if Biden gets elected, I think he'll have to be more tactical in what he does because if he wants to get the more moderate Republicans on his side and if he wants to kind of create this middle ground – for both parties, I don't think he'll be able to just come in and with a swoop of a pen, just get rid of everything that Trump has done because ultimately Trump has gotten support for what he's done mm-hmm. uh, on certain issues, whether it be foreign policy or domestic policy. So I think he'll, to, to unite the country, it can't, you can't cater to just one side or the other. Uh, you have to be more tactical in how you do it. He seems to be, Joe Biden, this is, taking moving himself away from this stance of defunding the police. Hmm. The worry is 
when that actually happens. So he gets into power. And you, you sorry, you look at Antifa and you look at BLM, and they say, you know, we, we don't support either Democrats or Republicans. Democrats are just the better option of the two. So I certainly don't see an end to Antifa and the BLM movement when, if President Biden becomes President Biden. Um, I can only see perhaps a, a short pause to kind of see how he then reacts in his presidency and then we may just see an increase in, in protests and rioting again because they're not seeing the policies that they want put in place. And how do you see the kind of the hardcore uh, elements of Trump supporters, his base there, how do you see them reacting if, if Joe Biden is elected president? Uh, well, there certainly will be a reaction, although I don't think it would be along the lines of what we saw in 2016 with uh, sort of the, uh, with Democrat supporters just simply uh, out protesting, not being able to accept uh, the result of the election. Uh, I think from say uh, you know sort of more hard you know, uh, not. Uh, Rather than sort of you know, Republicans, more so from the actual the the far right, the right wing extremists, I think you'll see the possibility of a, a sort of a repeat of Charlottesville back in August 2017, and mm-hmm. what caused that was actually not actually just the simple election of a, of a government official, but a government policy to it was to take down uh, with Confederate statues. So. I think, say, from the, you know, if a Biden presidency were to were to come in, from I suppose you know the the, the uh, extreme uh, extreme extreme opponents, say from the far uh, far right right wing extremism, it will be a case of if the you know depends on what the what a Biden uh, administration. Uh, what kind of policies they would try to enact? So, if, I think a, a real good example would be any kind of any kind of gun, uh, you know, national gun uh, legislation. Mm-hmm. That would be a that would be, I suppose, a, a trigger for a, a reaction from uh, I suppose from you know from uh, Republicans. Uh, but also, there would be the possibility of the source of unrest uh, that, that was seen in Charlottesville back in 2017. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's definitely possible in regards to if you look at the number of hate groups or anti-government groups that. Uh, are in the United, that are registered in the U.S. Uh, by by certain uh, think tanks, uh, they tend to increase when the Democrat uh, becomes president and kind of decrease when a Republican is president. Um, however, I think, yeah, I think so. You might see um, kind of opposition toward towards those policies, and you talk about um, gun control uh, from Demo- from uh, Biden if he comes into office. But I think the initial step will. Uh, if he does come into office, will be to tackle COVID-19, uh, the pandemic, and kind of uh, help the economy uh, and small businesses. And I think uh, looking at his campaign, and uh, he's kind of taken a step back from this as well, uh, but talks about kind of um, mask mandates, uh, not so much from federal government, but working with uh, local officials and state governors to kind of pass mask mandates. And I think when we saw the types of protests that were happening when uh, the Trump administration was putting restrictions in place during COVID, where we had protests, armed protesters at state capitals across the country uh, demanding that the country reopen. Um, if, if the Biden administration were to pass such a mandate or work to pass such a mandate, I think we're likely to see uh, these types of anti-government groups like the Boogaloo Boys or, or kind of other types of state militias uh, protesting uh, to, and crying out for gov- because of government uh, infringement. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. That it's going to be far less palatable for right-wing groups to get this sort of legislation from Biden rather than Trump. Mm-hmm. And I do think you will get, yes, you will get libertarian groups like the Boogaloo Boys, but you'll also get the militia-type groups, and you'll also get the lunatic fringe who'll just 
piggyback on these movements and try to escalate the situation. Um, I mean, it's, for me, it's it's fairly clear how the left will react. I think we've seen it through the last through a few years of, of President Trump um, and his presidency. You know, we've seen protests, we've seen rioting, we've seen sustained rioting, we've seen the attempts to create autonomous zones, and I could see those increasing um, if Trump gets into another um, uh, presidency, another second term. Um, but I also think you could sort of see a, a flare-up um, at certain clash points um, between different groups. So say, for example, on the day of President Trump's inauguration, there's some sort of protest outside the White House by left-wing groups and a counter-protest by right-wing groups. The worry is that that then escalates to some sort of confrontation and perhaps with the use of weapons. Um, On the right, to kind of assess how they would react to a Biden presidency, I think it's worth just kind of fleshing out what the right really looks like. Um, You know, if we kind of talk about Unite the Right rally in in, um, Charlottesville, that was predominantly made up of ethnic nationalist groups. So you had... um, People like Richard Spencer was there, the National Policy Institute. You had a variety of different groups like the Traditional Workers' Party who'd all come together and then were counter-protested by left-wing groups. But within the US, you have the civic nationalists and you have the ethno-nationalists, and so the alt-right and the alt-right as they're seen. So the civic nationalists can be made up of any ethnicity. It's purely about nationalism and seeing yourself as being an American, whereas for the ethno-nationalists, it's very much about... um, looking at the world through the prism of race, which, uh, you know, the worry looking at the left now is that they're also starting to force this agenda of trying to make everybody look through the prism of race. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the right, you know, I think what you said before, I think that is 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 really accurate. I think it will be push-button issues, things like legislation regarding um the wearing of masks. I think those will be flashpoints, but also perhaps stuff around the Second Amendment side of it. So in, in summary, really, from, from, from a kind of Republican or, or a hardcore right-wing view, it, it's going to be mainly sim, symbology or legislation that, that, that initiates social unrest, whereas the left-wing, I think they're already established, they've already had four years of anti-government demonstrations, and as Michael said, we, we've kind of seen um, historically what, what, what kind of direct actions that they're capable of and, and, and the kind of protests that they, they do use. I think the challenge will be, there is an unknown quantity about, say, the, the certain elements or fringes of the far right, such as um, the alt-right, where if you've got um, neo-Nazis or white supremacist groups, there's the potential there for lone wolf attacks or for you know a, a non-organised threat actor to, to carry out um, any, any, any kind of high-profile incident. Whereas I think looking at the far left, you've got more organised um, groups which carry out um, specific acts of protest or looting whereas i think yeah from from a from a far right perspective there's more of an unknown quantity which may morph into political assassination attempts or or specific violence it's it's a good point and from the, the extremist perspective what we always see is that they are driven by conspiracy theories and the big ones that quite frankly are getting traction at the moment is things like QAnon. Um, QAnon being a conspiracy theory that alleges that there is a, a cabal of Satan-worshipping pedophiles who run a global sex trafficking ring that's plotting against President Trump um, who is then battling against them, leading to a day of reckoning involving the mass arrest of journalists and politicians. Um, so I can see some sort of somebody on the lunatic fringe reacting to one of these conspiracy theories if President Trump doesn't 
get into a second term and potentially we see terrorism attacks um, as a result of that. And I think we, we, we've seen uh, instances uh, with preceding QAnon with Pizzagate where an individual went to a pizza shop in Washington, D.C. Um, and was armed uh, looking for a sex trafficking ring. Uh, and in regards to QAnon, we've seen similar things uh, in, in, Tucson, in a Tucson cement plant um, in, in 2018 where uh, the, the individual alleged that it was a child sex trafficking camp. Um, but what we also see is that that conspiracy theory is becoming mainstream, not only in followers uh, far right or, or, or Trump followers, but also we've seen uh, kind of Q signs at, at certain Trump rallies, but also within uh, individual uh, people running for, for Congress for seats of power. Um, so I think it, it, it is frightening, and I think it, it shows kind of, like you said, the, the potential for, for lone actors acting out in terms of whether terrorist attack or, or any other attacks. And I think it, it shows kind of the differences between the threat from the left and the threat from the right in terms of, uh, from what I see, is the threat from the left being uh, kind of more organized groups uh, like Antifa, like BLM, um, and protesting, rioting, looting, um, although there's been studies that show that uh, on the internet and social media, we've seen far, right, uh, far left groups uh, advocating for more violence, uh, which is something new, using things like meme or, or kind of uh, popular culture references uh, like we have before on, on HN and things like that with far right groups. Um, but I think on the right, then the threat becomes by those lone individual actors uh, who are e- easier for them to kind of fly under radar to commit their acts. Um, so I think it's kind of two distinct threats from either side, uh, which, based on the outcome of the election, uh, is, is quite frightening. And it's a sign of the polarization because you have people now who are in their own camps who support people who perhaps they wouldn't have traditionally supported a decade ago. But um, it's almost an ugly baby contest. It's like, well, I far rather prefer Trump to Biden, so I'm going to support him. But people also end up in these little bubbles of information where they're just receiving confirmation regarding what they think from people of the same mindset. And I think part of the issue is the whole issue with social media. So you've had um, right-wing people who've been thrown off Twitter. You're now seeing rise in right-wing social media channels like Parler. So you now have people on different ends of the political spectrum on different social media channels and never meeting in the middle and having conversations with each other regarding their political beliefs, which again, just adds to the the effect of polarization. Yeah, and that's the thing with kind of algorithms from these social media platforms where you're searching for certain things and then all you're getting is that information. You're never getting the other side. So you're, like you said, stuck within within that single bubble and that, that can become dangerous. So in terms of foreign influence or interference, do you think that um, countries outside the USA are taking advantage of this divisiveness and polarization of politics to be able to interfere with the election process? Yes, uh, it's, def- it's definitely a case. In fact, one thing that's sort of I, I, I've been tending to notice is when there's uh, references to sort of foreign interference or you know sort of in, a, in sort of collusion. Real, from what we can tell, actually, it's more of a case of you know foreign actors actually not so much trying to interfere with the actual electoral process or trying to corrupt any actual official. It's more of a case of trying to just simply make the uh, uh, increase the level of polarization. So not rather sort of interfere with the actual election processes, just actually have people uh, just 
having irreconcilable differences uh, between each other. And the, the, I mean, the Russians are certainly very, uh, very effective at that. In fact, with uh, an incident with, I was tracking in Ukraine uh, a few days ago, actually, the, the security service there actually uncovered a, a major bot farm which had been spreading, uh, not so much in, in this particular case, it hadn't actually been spreading, uh, had any involvement in, the, in US politics, but was actually doing what's uh, been doing sort of the similar tactics, but applying it to, uh, applying it to Ukraine. So foreign interference, it's, it's definitely there, but it's more, so f- more sort of focused on turning people against each other rather than actually interfering with, what, uh, with the actual, you know, being, you know, any sort of like tallying of votes or corrupting a, uh, a, a, an official over here or the president himself. It's mm-hmm. more so just making people on the ground um, essentially hate each other. <laughs> it, it comes down to as simple as divide and conquer. Um, and as, as part of the research for this, I read the um, the report of the Select Committee on Intelligence um, from the United States Senate on Russian active measures campaign um, and interference in the 2016 election. And it's worth just kind of reading some of the findings from that, because I do think it will be applicable to this election as well. So it stated, in 2016, Russian operatives associated with the St. Petersburg-based Internet Research Agency, or the IRA, used social media to con- conduct an information warfare campaign designed to spread disinformation and societal division in the United States. Masquerading as Americans, these operatives used targeted advertisements, intentionally falsified news articles, self-generated content and social media platform tools to interact with and attempt to deceive tens of millions of social media users in the United States. The campaign sought to polarize Americans on the basis of societal, ideological and racial differences, provoked real-world events and was part of a foreign government's covert support of Russia's favored candidate in the U.S. presidential election. Um, and again, part of the findings stated where the intelligence community assessed that the Russian government aspired to help President-elect Trump's election chances where possible by discrediting Secretary Clinton and publicly contrasting her unfavorably to him. And the committee found that the IRA social media activity was overtly and almost invariably supportive of then-President Trump. And to the detriment of Secretary Clinton's campaign, the committee found that Russia's targeting of the 2016 US president presidential election was part of a broader, sophisticated and ongoing information warfare campaign designed to sow discord in American politics and society. An IRA operators sought to impact primaries for both major parties and may have helped to sink the hopes of candidates more hostile to Russian interests long before the field narrowed. And the committee found that no single group of Americans was targeted by IRA information operatives more than African Americans. By far, race and related issues were the preferred target of the information warfare campaign designed to divide the country in 2016. And what have we seen as a result of that? Um, you've kind of seen, you know, this the huge growth of the BLM movement, which is, is getting to a point where it's we're seeing cities like Portland and Seattle and New York witnessing significant civil unrest as well as rioting. Um, and if I was Russia and I was looking at the US, and if I wanted them to be less outward focusing and looking at Russian um, operations around the world, and I want them just to be concentrated on the US. I'd be pushing for another um, Trump election because it feels like that is only going to exacerbate the problem even further and create even more division within US society. On the other hand, though, as well, you've got other countries out there that may be looking um, potentially supporting a Democrat um, candidate such as Joe Biden. If you look at Iran or China, um, Trump's belligerent attitude to, to on the international relations front to them over the last few years may in turn make them themselves um, enact their own information warfare policies um, and try and influence a, you know, an anti-Trump outcome on social media as well. So I think we've got a multitude of, of foreign countries with 
potential to interfere in this election. So moving on, um, in a worst case scenario, what if neither side, the Democrats or the Republicans, admit defeat in this election? Well, I think that's, that's a question that's a lot of uh, Congress, uh, congressmen and congresswomen in the United States are asking uh, themselves and even individuals uh, just based on kind of the rhetoric that we've seen from, from Trump in regards to we might not know the results for, uh, for a while or forever or uh, he's not sure exactly what he'll do. Uh, depending on the results the night of the mm-hmm. election. So I think, and it's led to some uh, Congress members uh, asking uh, generals, uh, to who do you, uh, like, take your oath as a constitution of a president? Like, what what will happen during, uh, if Trump refuses to leave office, if he does lose the election? Um, and a contested election is, is something that we saw uh, in 2000 with uh, Al Gore and mm-hmm. uh, President George Bush in regards to the results in Florida. But at that time, uh, it was very much taken to the courts, and Al Gore told his supporters not to protest and let the courts do its job. And in the end, we saw Al Gore concede the election and George W. Bush become president. This this time around, if uh, a contested election happened, I think yes, the courts will play a factor because uh, ultimately, law and order courts have to have to take the make the decision. But I think uh, in regards to protest on the streets, it's something that will likely happen from either side, uh, depending on who loses. Uh, we'll either see uh, Trump supporters in the streets with counter-protest or we'll see Biden protesters in the streets with counter-protest as well. So I think um, it'll, it'll be an interesting uh, outcome if that happens. And a, a number of think tanks have been trying to run scenarios on what can either campaign possibly do, uh, whether it's replacing uh, electors in certain states to then uh, vote in favor of them. or So it's it, it's... It's one of those situations that uh, one hopes not to happen. Do you think on the medium term or the longer term it could undermine the faith in the democratic institutions within the USA? I mean, just on that, so Bloomberg paid for a study by a Democrat data analytics firm, and what they found and assessed was that President Trump will likely appear to have won by a landslide on election night, um, even if he ultimately loses when all the votes are counted. Um, so what they're saying is that the Democrats are less likely to actually vote in person, so he'll actually appear to win by a landslide on the evening, that, but then once the votes are counted, perhaps over the next two weeks, they think they'll actually swing towards Biden at that point. Um, the worry being, and I kind of you know, think back to my own career and, and working in, in, in Ramadi in 2010, you know, 2006 election in Iraq, you had the Sunnis who just did not participate in the electoral, electoral process at all. They finally kind of engaged with it in 2010. They supported um, Ayad Alawi. Ayad Alawi won the popular vote, but he couldn't actually form a coalition. So it ended up being another Maliki um, presidency and the Sunnis felt massively disenfranchised by the electoral process and that's the real worry for me is that there is such a lack of faith in institutions across the West. What then happens when the electorate lose faith in the actual democratic process and it just feeds into this polarisation and the potential for some sort of confrontation um, during the term of the next president. And I think in the United States I think we're seeing this kind of loss of faith in institution in regard to the electoral college because uh, even in 2016, when President Trump uh, won the election because he won the Electoral College, which decides who becomes president, he had lost the popular vote. Um, and even though he won the election, he still uh, complained and said that Hillary only won the popular vote because millions of illegals uh, had voted, although those are unsubstantiated claims. Uh, in regards to kind of vote counting, there's groups like Protect the Results and Progressive Change Campaign Committee who are co- in coordinating efforts to kind of ensure a public interest 
um, after the election to defend the vote counting. And it's we're doing so based on the assumption that Trump may intimidate state officials uh, tabulating mail-in ballots by mobilizing armed supporters outside these, hmm. the, these these areas where votes are being counted. And I think that's not unrealistic that we see certain groups uh, of either side probably um, outside the, the polling stations. Uh, and we've seen it uh, just recently, a couple of weeks ago in, in Fairfax, uh, Virginia, uh, where uh, supporters of President Trump were outside a polling station just having a small rally. Uh, but that kind of um, puts into question the, uh, things like electioneering, where individuals technically aren't supposed to uh, kind of influence who people vote for at a certain distance from a polling station um, or where anything that might uh, be supporting a certain candidate just so that people who maybe come undecided don't get influenced by individuals. So I think this election might see kind of uh, groups on either side kind of towing the line uh, just to kind of maybe influence. So it, it's it's possible. So if neither side accepts the election results and we have a state of impasse, and we start to see, in a worst-case scenario, unrest or violence uh, occurring in, in maybe urban areas, um, in contentious areas um, politically. You know, do you think there's a chance that we'll start to to see, from, a, from maybe a most dangerous course of action, civilians carrying out tit-for-tat um, attacks, um, a violence against ideological opponents, um, such as targeting businesses that they don't agree with or targeting um, police or law enforcement representatives or even politicians um, you know, who, are, who are perceived as being uh, sided with a rival group or political ideology. Yeah, I think with regards to, I suppose, targeting of businesses, uh, that would certainly be a, 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 a possibility, uh, likelihood in um, in areas where, of, say, Portland, Seattle and, and New York, where a lot of Antifa, and uh, I suppose the sort of very anti-capitalist uh, elements in America uh, have a lot of freedom of movement. Uh, so I dare say that uh, in those areas, that's where businesses would be particularly targeted and uh, likely Minneapolis uh, as well. In terms of, I suppose, uh, with uh, sort of attack, attacks on police, in fact, I think there is one thing that could actually sort of exacerbate uh, um, a, a social unrest uh, during and after, the, and after the election is kind of a sort of a, a wildcard situation of, uh, of an officer-involved shooting. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, since now, of course, with uh, the death of George Floyd, uh, that kicked off all, uh, the the widespread unrest we're seeing, and a lot of the anti-police rhetoric and efforts to uh, defund the police in a lot of uh, democratic run uh, democratic run cities, uh, Democrat run cities. Now, interesting part about um, not not the not the instance of George of George Floyd's death. There's certainly there's certainly elements where the police officer involved needs to be held accountable for his actions. But in officer-involved shootings after uh, after George Floyd's death, two in particular, uh, there's been cases where there's been quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of very hard evidence to indicate the officers acted in self-defence. But BLM and uh, anti uh, sort of you know, left-wing extremists and any sort of anti-police sort of uh, advocates have whipped up tensions uh, to cause un- unrest. Uh, two particular cases of this, uh, probably the most distinct ones, would be uh, incident involving Rashad Brooks. In, in Atlanta, where he you know, he fell asleep behind the wheel of his car, there's uh, indications he was heavily intoxicated. Pol- uh, the Wendy staff at, uh, at that uh, that location actually called police. They responded, questioned uh, Brooks, and as they were placing him under arrest, he began to resist violently. Ended up being able to uh, grab one of the police officers' tasers, 
fire the taser at an officer and try and fire again whilst he was fleeing. At that point, uh, officer, uh, officers shot him dead. Now, there was at least two camera feeds that, sh- uh, that showed uh, the um, that the officers were acting in self-defense at the time, and that footage was released was released quickly. However, BLM and a lot of uh, sort of anti-police advocates in the area whipped up tensions uh, really, um, you know, to a significant level. Despite the evidence in place, so that there was see indications agitators taking advantage of yes. the situation. Yeah. And even so, actually, a, probably an even more stark example was the incident involving Hakeem Littleton in Detroit, where police were actually executing an arrest warrant on a, a, a different person entirely. It was a, a, a drugs warrant and uh, Littleton was a, a bystander. He was, uh, it was the the suspect that the police were arresting was, was his friend and as they were arresting him, Littleton pulled out a pistol and I don't know how on earth he missed. He was at point blank range, uh, tried to shoot an off- uh, tried to shoot the arresting officer dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, officers responded, but despite the body camera footage being released on it, there was widespread unrest towards, uh, towards Detroit PD. So, uh, what could uh, whip up unrest a lot uh, in in terms of sort of anti police uh, rhetoric and any kind of situation of a, a most dangerous course of action that would certainly be a, a kind of a trigger that would contribute to uh, contribute to that sort of situation occurring. Just so, just yeah. on that, sorry, so you kind of mentioned the most dangerous course of action. So in terms of looking at indicators and warnings historically. I think it's worrying seeing groups like um, the militia groups that are forming. Um, there was the uh, recent confrontation between the militia group near where the Confederate statue is um, and the NFAC, which is a black nationalist um, group who all come out armed. Um, so these are worrying scenes that we're starting to see, which I think could feed into that most dangerous course of action scenario. Um uh, kind of what you were mentioning, Matt, you know, with that Wendy's incident, the the restaurant, I believe, was burnt down after that. So from a business yeah. perspective, there is going to be you know, intimidation from businesses to actually report on these sorts of crimes out of intimidation that they feel that they're going to be you know, attacked as a result of it. And I think that's a key thing that we should really talk about is just what is the business impact going to be um, from this? And I think we're seeing, um, you know, as an example, um, just recently, the, um, the retailer Columbia Sportswear have permanently closed down their store in Seattle. Um, and, and they are one of, I think it's 126 street level businesses that have left the downtown area since March as the pandemic forced many merchants to close. But also you've seen um, significant um, violence um, and rioting and protests that have occurred there, which has impacted businesses, especially in the areas of where Chaz and Chop were. And I was kind of watching you know, some video footage of, uh, I think it was a garage just next to where Chaz was. And he was saying, you know, he lost like $60,000 in the first couple of weeks of Chaz being mm. formed. Um, but I think the key issue is going to be the security situation. You, you can't have business without security. And what you're seeing with all these um, these cities where they're actually defunding police. Um, you know, I think recently Seattle um, has voted to override the mayor's veto on the $3 million police budget, which is going to lead to 100 police officer layoffs. This is going only going to lead to an increase in criminality, which is going to impact business. And you know, do you see as well um, potentially militia groups or, or concerned local citizens forming their own um, groups to be able to uh, to provide protection in the event of a of a security vacuum if if police leave those areas. We've already seen it. In, yeah. yeah, we saw it in Michigan. Yeah, well, um, start. Yeah, and from well the LA riots, we saw we saw dead, but then just recently, uh, where in Minnesota and things like in every kind of riot that's taken place, uh, and not just kind of the smaller ones on a daily basis, but the ones with 
in the initial reaction when there's significant looting, significant arson, uh, we've seen individuals uh, protect businesses, uh, whether they've been asked by the owners or not, that's unsure, but uh, we've seen that action being taken. The worry is that um, it's not just local community members or business owners protecting their own business, but then individuals from out of mm-hmm. state who have no links to that community, such as uh, what we saw in uh, was it Kenosha uh, with Kyle Rittenhouse coming in from Illinois to, to that armed, um, breaking several laws in, in that process, and then leading to a confrontation where, what, two or three people were killed in yeah, that instance. Um, so I think that that's the worrying factor is that of the mobility of individuals going across state lines, trying, taking up arms, uh, protecting businesses, uh, on their own recognition, uh, leading to further confrontation because they're not recognized as a member of a community. So it, for those community members that are protesting, whether legitimate or illegitimately, they'll be seen as outsiders uh, that are just there to agitate the situation despite those individuals that, that come that say, we're just here to protect businesses. For From, an, from a community member perspective, it'll just be seen likely as agitators. Yeah. In, in Michigan, you saw um, libertarians... Or um, standing guard outside of stores, armed in body armor, and when they were interviewed, they were saying, "You know, we're here to one protect the peaceful protesters, and to also keep an eye on the police and make yeah. sure that the police are doing, um, you know, not overstepping their bounds." But also, and I've seen footage and, and images from the west coast of the U.S. where um, Proud Boys have claimed to be actually guarding stores. They, and there's a, a, an image of them stood out a, a particular brand. I won't name what the brand was, but from a reputational perspective. Um, that would have a, a negative reputational impact on that brand if they if it's kind of felt through a social media post that they're actually protecting that brand yeah. as a result of it. Um, and I feel like it's just a, a one of these situations where people kind of watch the media and kind of watch this footage. And 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 recently with the the shooting um, in where you had the um, the right wing um, uh, demonstrator who was shot by the um, Antifa guy. Um, you know, these are the sorts of incidents that just feed into that most dangerous course of action because it just escalates the situation each time we see violence and, and especially deaths. Well, I think you make a good point in terms of kind of a reputational factor on, on businesses, uh, especially nowadays with kind of the cancel culture mm-hmm. uh, aspect of it all. Uh, I think if businesses are seen to uh, support um, a view that's not the view of the the majority that are protesting outside, there's the risk that on social media calls to boycott a certain brand to do certain things. And we know that the left is quite active and able to organize, whether it be by social media or in person. So I think you not only get the risk of your brand being affected economically by a boycott, but also by uh, individuals protesting outside your store because you didn't support their viewpoint. Um, so I think reputationally, um, it, it's very much uh, on edge, and we've seen it with kind of hate crimes uh, during the the last few years uh, when it's increased, especially during COVID-19 against Asians, uh, where there's social media accounts finding the individuals who are uh, committing the hate crime, whether it's verbal abuse or physical abuse, being found out by left-wingers or, or others, uh, and then finding out their place of employment and then that place of employment being contacted, being like, this is what this, your employee is doing, fire and basically. And there's been hundreds of people that have been fired because they've been caught out on social media uh, verbally abusing uh, Asian Americans or anyone else and then in return being fired. So I think brands are gaining a level of responsibility 
um, on this stage uh, that they can kind of turn away from. I think as well, in light of the security vacuum, uh, business premises are, are also go- increasingly going to be um, targeted for potential extortion by um, by sort of by, by groups um, for either money or, or for, for products, and as well as static business sites being affected by sec- localized unrest, there's also logistics, um, postal services that are you know, apprehensive or. Um, do not want to go into a certain district or neighbourhood to be able to to deliver. I think we had issues with that with Chaz, um, as well as um, workers and professionals. So what you're finding is in a lot of these urban areas or cities which have been affected by unrest, such as Seattle and Portland or New York, um, you've got uh, urban professionals or business owners from the middle classes now who are essentially leaving those areas. So you've got a, a huge brain drain um, and also a reduction, therefore, in your tax base so I think in, in, in the medium to longer term, we'll see some of these urban areas um, really suffering as a consequence of that because um, the, the employment generators, the local business owners who, who feel intimidated or they, they've had their stores looted, they go into upsticks and, and leave um, if, they, if they don't feel secure in that environment. And so, again, that just exacerbates the situation within these communities. A good example of that is the recent incident with Palantir. So you've had protests over some of their contracts linked to deportations in the US. So now they're actually, um, Palantir are moving their headquarters from Palo Alto to Denver. So you're actually having an, um, a good riddance celebration protest as they leave and then an unwelcome protest in the, near their Denver HQ where they're moving to. And I think for some of these people who see themselves as revolutionary, um, once they finished with the police and they've actually effectively defunded the police. Will they then move on to other companies? So will they, you know, first obvious targets are companies that work with security services, police. Um, so we've seen some of our competitors who um, were helping um, police to actually monitor protests in relation to um, Black Lives Matter as well as Antifa protests who then um, saw articles regarding them online and their support of them. But we've also seen protests against people like Amazon and Jeff Bezos. Um, and it's not just by the left. I mean, I was looking at some um, recent social media posts by Proud Boys who were um, agree- making a statement that the, the enemy is, is in the boardroom um, and kind mm-hmm. of blaming big business. So, you know, the worry is as America becomes more polarized and will the targets of these protest groups shift from the police to large multinational companies who they feel are having an impact on the environment. Um, and it's something that we will certainly be monitoring, but it's something that I do worry about. And could that escalate from protesting outside or vandalising a, a property to actually targeting uh, a business with, with a bombing or, or, or a shooting? Um, we've seen in, in the 1970s the Weather Underground um, who who saw that their, their movement w- wasn't gaining traction in the mainstream. Um, they essentially went down the path of uh, increasingly violent uh, terrorist actions against their perceived uh, opponents um, on apparatus of the state. So I think as we see a, an increasingly polarised uh, domestic front on the United States, we could we could sort of see these, um, these actions developing in the future. I think if they see that their tactics have worked against an organisation like the police, then why wouldn't they just move those tactics over to another target group? So why wouldn't they conduct mass protests for an ongoing period as well as using tactics like doxing certain mm-hmm. people within an organization um so i can see this this um this target profile of some of these groups switching from the security um apparatus to companies that they feel are having uh, a significant detrimental impact on the community 
And could we also see lone wolf actors resorting to, say, more um, lethal measures, such as on the far right, um, targeting a, a company or business which is perceived as being woke or um, you know, having having views which are opposite to um, hardcore uh, Trump supporter or QAnon follower and targeting that business with maybe you know, a, a lethal device or, or, or some form of uh, weaponry. We've seen social media companies being targeted because of their perceived bias towards certain political groups. Mm-hmm. And I could see that exasperate, exacerbating going forward. Um, Groups that feel like they have been um, impacted by that that company, then seeing direct action against them by whatever group it is who feel as if they have been um, impacted by that, that that company. So yeah, I can see it evolving as well. So um, looking on the international front, um, how do we see um, the United States relations um, on the world stage um, panning out if, if if Trump regains uh, power? I think. Probably much of the same. I think he'll continue to have focus on, on China and Iran because um, I think domestically that's that's proven uh, favorable in regards to his supporters. Um, I think, yeah. So I think it'll, that that's probably where his focus will lie. Um, I don't think, uh, despite the rhetoric that he's given to other countries like Venezuela uh, in, in in South America, I don't think there'll be likely an escalation in terms of an actual operation from the U.S. government to kind of oust Maduro from power. Um, I think his, uh, his, he'll continue to focus towards China and Iran during that time. Do you think um, that he'll also be emboldened to carry out potentially further, um, further trade or negotiations um, with, with China to, to try and get an even greater advantage as he perceived for, for the United States? Probably, just because, like we, I think we talked about him being emboldened on, on the domestic front. Mm-hmm. Just if he is reelected, and because of survival from impeachment, from from a number of uh, scandals, so I think if, uh, another term would likely embolden him to further um, his, his uh, policies towards China, uh, especially with the support he's gotten. Although there's, uh, he'll have to have results, or he could lose uh, support because, um, despite. Uh, the trade negotiations farmers in the U.S. still have hurt uh, because because of of those negotiations. So if if they continue um, on a prolonged period to where there's no some sectors of his base aren't receiving uh, the support uh, that they expect, then he could potentially lose. So I think he'll focus and he'll he'll continue uh, his his hardline uh, policies towards China. But I think mm-hmm. uh, he'll he'll have to be tactical as well. I think either um, president will have a, a huge challenge with the economic ramifications of the, the COVID pandemic. Um, we've seen mass layoffs now. We've seen um, you know, social unrest as well. And, and, and um, there's very few um, immediate responses that the, that the actual uh, the U.S. government can do other than um, you know, money printing from the Fred or quantitative uh, print, quantitative, quantitative easing. Um, so, I think um, either either president will, will have a significant challenge uh, in, in the immediate future. How do you see a Joe Biden victory on the international front? Yeah, on for for uh, for Joe Biden, it certainly will be of uh, quite a difficult task. <coughs> Excuse me, pardon me. 
Uh, of course, with re- with a lot of recent reporting, uh, Joe Biden's often there's often been uh, reporting from sort of you know Republican supporters and Republican campaign ads that show Joe Biden being very pro uh, being very pro China, and of course with the with the outbreak of of, uh, of the of the coronavirus, there is of course quite a bit of hostility towards the Chinese uh, Chinese government for uh, you know various actions taken and, and not taken. Uh, also. I think one thing that uh, Joe uh, Joe Biden will have a lot of difficulty with if he if he is uh, elected president when it comes to the international stage is dealings with is dealings with Russia. Now, in uh, in the wake of the the sort of the the, uh, the Russia collusion scandal where there was allegations of of, of uh, you know trying to uh, have uh, well trying to impeach President Trump. The Democrats actually, it actually became revealed that there's actually more evidence of the Democrats engaging in the sort of corrupt behavior that uh, they were accusing President Trump of. And one name that came up quite a bit was uh, Joe Biden's son, Hunter, who, uh, from, from, uh, based on a lot of anecdotal reporting, has quite a lot of business dealings in Ukraine. So, with, uh, if President Biden, if uh, Joe Biden were to be elected president when it comes to sort of, you know, his uh, sort of approaches on the world stage, uh, any kind of interactions with uh, with Russia? Well, if he takes a sort of a, a, a bellicose attitude towards Russia, there, you know, any sort of cynical commentator could make the allegation that he's simply being bellicose towards Russia in order to increase business opportunities for his uh, for his family. Hmm. And we saw that the Democrats historically had a more um, antagonistic uh, approach, I think, to Russia. Uh, looking at the twenty sixteen election with Hillary Clinton, um, do you see? Joe Biden um, looking at Iran and, and trying to continue with um, Trump's policies, or potentially attempting to renegotiate a nuclear deal. Uh, he, again, that's going to be a that's that's going to be one very very uh, tight rope to walk, uh, simply because in the wake of the Iran nuclear deal, there was a, uh, quite a few allegations that came from uh, after the Obama administration of a lot of uh, a lot of uh, sort of yeah, a, a lot of money being sent to Iran uh, by cash, in which Iran's known for its spon- uh, global sponsorship of terrorism. So there was, of course, in- links right away towards the possibility of the US. Under the, uh, the the Iran nuclear deal, providing money, were they in fact providing money to uh, terrorist groups that Iran was uh, the Iran was supporting? Mm-hmm. Also, another factor is actually very recently President Trump has uh, sealed quite a lot of peace nego- uh, peace deals between Arab nations and Israel that would that appear to have appeared that appear, uh, have the potential to normalize relations between those countries. Now, historically, uh, Arabs and Israelis have not gotten along whatsoever. So these recent peace agreements appear to be a kind of a, you know, a, a kind of a, a game changer. So with uh, any kind of approaches towards Iran, if, if uh, Joe Biden were to be elected president, if he took sort of a, a, a I suppose a, a view towards Iran of of how th- of how how he and President Obama approached it. Well, that is that there's a chance that that would uh, undermine a lot of the recent agreements that uh, President Trump has has put into place and could actually uh, could actually have a negative impact on something that could be a potential game changer for relations in the Middle East for for years to come. Trump's tried through this to be the peacemaker in the first term as presidency, and he reached out to North Korea with Kim Jong-un, but then also more recently with um, the work that he's done with with Israel and some Arab nations. But at the same time, he's exacerbated the issue with the Palestinians by uh, the decision to move the US embassy to Jerusalem. Um, The wonder would be, with a second term, would he again 
try to um, begin talks with North Korea with the whole nuclear disarmament aspect of it? Um, and would he try further to um, push more peace initiatives in the Middle East? Um, from Biden's foreign policy perspective, um, I mean, he's already stated that the Israeli embassy will go to Jerusalem, it will stay in Jerusalem. Um, he stated that he wants to restore alliances, promote human rights, as well as stand up to dictators. Um, from the Chinese perspective, the tariffs that Trump has put in place on China, it seems like that would be a good leverage point for Biden to begin conversations mm -hmm. with China. Um, but then also, you know, if you look at Russia and um, America's position on the Nord Stream um, gas pipeline, um, I can't see... Joe Biden kind of pulling back from that because it provides Russia with so much leverage with Europe. I think Joe Biden will continue with that push back against um, Nord Stream. But I also think there'll be an opportunity for um, Joe Biden's president to try and sort of heal some of the rifts with international bodies that President Trump has kind of clashed with. Uh, historically, Trump's always had a bit of a contentious uh, relationship with NATO and, and some European uh, Union member countries. How do you see the Joe Biden um, government um, trying to establish well, relationships. Well, that's uh, kind of, we, we talked about kind of which countries might, might see focus. And I think with every presidency, uh, there's a period of time kind of in, in their foreign policy where they pivot towards some, something somewhere. Uh, Obama did so with Asia. Uh, and I think uh, a Biden election would likely kind of see a pivot towards Europe and try to um, rehash and kind of uh, rework those those alliances in Europe that, uh, seem to have taken a, a slight hit during the, the Trump administration. Um, and like Michael mentioned, in terms of international bodies, NATO being one of them, the UN, the WHO, I think there's uh, going to be activity on the world stage that will need to be taken by the Trump administration to kind of um, work on those, uh, on those um, alliances, especially if he's looking at kind of renegotiating uh, with Iran, if that's if that's a pivot he wants to do, or with other countries, I think uh, rather than going at it alone, which has very very much been the America First policy mm -hmm. of Trump, I think uh, based on the Obama Biden administration of which Biden was part of, and kind of the way they've done things, I think seeking a kind of international bodies and international alliances as groups to handle some of these uh, situation and actors. Uh, is likely kind of what the Biden administration might do. So in summary, the Biden administration will take a more multilateral approach to diplomacy um, and also attempt to um, re-inject um, US participation into foreign bodies such as the United Nations and NATO and, and potentially taking on more of an active role in those rather than Previously, we've seen, yeah, like you said, Trump taking a more unilateral approach to to foreign policy. And I think that's 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 also could be a point of contention for for Biden in regards to the to uh, antagonistic and uh, protest against him domestically, because uh, the argument is that kind of Democrats are globalist, which is something that the right isn't too much of a fan of. So, it, trying to take part in those organizations once again. Uh, might might take a hit on the domestic front for for Biden, so it's something that we'll have to keep an eye out uh, in the future. And and finally, how do you see uh, the relationship with Mexico? The wall has always been a contentious issue. Trump and Mexico have, have you know had a had an interesting relationship over the last four years. Um, how do you see a Joe Biden um, administration um, taking on that? Well, I don't think um, I don't think there will be a change in regards to kind of. Uh, the wall, I think the rhetoric will, will kind of change and 
because uh, I don't think Democrats are uh, anti-border security mm-hmm. or, or pro-immigration uh, uh, per se, pro-illegal immigration per se. But I think uh, he'll probably change rhetoric to where uh, he'll say that uh, what needs to happen is that border security needs to happen. There needs to be more resources at border checkpoints. There needs to be more recruitment uh, to man checkpoints, to man the border. Um, because right now the border wall, the side, most of the sections that have uh, we've seen erected are just replacement of pre-existing uh, border fence. Um, so I think he, if he doesn't want to alienate kind of and wants to bring people back to the middle, I think he'll have to be strategic in the way he puts the rhetoric um, towards um, towards the Mexican U.S. Mexico border, um, and I think the relationship with Mexico is is one that we'll see uh, what happens just based on what's happening in Mexico in regards to kind of anti-government protests towards uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador um, currently taking place. So I think who knows what a Mexican government will look like by the time Biden's elected and um, if uh, AMLO in, in, in Mexico gets a, a second term himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think relationships change based on who runs the country. Uh, but I think in regards to domestically and how they want to handle the security of the border, it'll be more focused towards technology, manpower, and at those checkpoints where we see uh, a bulk of kind of drugs uh, coming in and within a certain distance of those checkpoints where we do see uh, illegal immigration take place. Thanks, Vincent. So in summary today... Based on the scenario of a Trump re-election, we will see likely further left-wing protests, political confrontation between local domestic and federal government, and a continuation of foreign policy. With a Biden victory, we will likely see an attempt at reproachment on the international stage, a reduction in urban unrest by left-wing groups, but a potential for isolated unrest by right-wing groups over future policy measures such as gun control. Being a global intelligence platform, we will be monitoring the entire election process closely and providing threat analysis assessment for clients. We hope you enjoyed our panel discussion and topic. All incident information discussed here is held on our intelligence platform. If your business would like to understand how we can assist your security needs, please get in touch on the link below. If you found this discussion useful, please like, share and subscribe. (laughs) 